All right, we are back. Uh, apropos to our discussion right before the break, uh, we should hear from uh, America's foremost political comic. Wilders here with absolutely no sympathy for the Republicans and the tizzy that they find themselves in. The financial regulatory bill has them wedged between a conundrum and a dilemma. Their banker buddies are lobbying hard to oppose any restrictive legislation, placing the GOP in the unenviable position of having to defend Wall Street in an election year. Yeah, like going to SeaWorld and rooting for the sharks to eat the dolphins in front of your kids. So the party-line strategy is to claim they oppose the bill because it helps Wall Street by regulating it. Yeah, okay, well, nobody said it was going to be easy. The bankers have embarked on an all-out assault. It'll hurt the economy. You know, if self-delusion were sand, these guys would be the Gobi Desert. What planet have they been living on for the last two years? Might want to pick up a newspaper where you could read about the communities forced to cut such non-essential services as fire and police while you hand out executive bonuses larger than the shortfalls of many of these communities. Meanwhile, Mitch McConnell and his ilk are giving it their all. If the senator from Kentucky says bailout one more time, his face is going to freeze like that. Oh wait, it already has. Republicans keep portraying the Wall Street bailout as another example of Obama's socialist agenda even though a Republican administration proposed it and they all voted for it. Obviously, they're trying to dance to the rather morbid teabagger melody. They keep on obstructing and repeating the mantra that government is bad, and ironically, they've become their own best argument. Yeah, sure, Washington is broken. You bang on a monument with sledgehammers long enough, and eventually everybody becomes blind from the marble dust. The problem is, science has yet to develop any instrument capable of measuring this kind of arrogance. You know what? We need a new scale. For Radio Parallax, I'm Will Durst. Thank you, Will. Um, want to note that the... McClatchy newspaper, Sacramento Bee, and others have done a great job of covering what's going on in Wall Street. And we have to also quote from an article by Zachary Goldfarb in the Washington Post, who noted that as the U.S. housing market began its epic fall nearly three years ago, top executives at Wall Street powerhouse Goldman Sachs cheered the large financial gains the firm stood to make on certain bets that it placed, according to newly released documents. Lawmakers said that internal emails released last Saturday by the Senate Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations contradict what Goldman Sachs has been saying that the bank was not trying to profit from the decline of the housing market. I need to also refer you to the excellent This American Life of two weeks ago, where uh, Ira Glass's program took a look at a company called Magnetar and how it was not only betting on the market going down, was doing everything possible to crash it, because if it crashed, the guys were running the show were going to really clean up. So anyway, we certainly encourage the Obama administration to go after some of the higher-ups at Goldman Sachs and other places. They certainly have it coming. Of course, that point of view is disagreed with by Rupert Murdoch's Wall Street Journal, which said in its editorial pages, We hope Republicans stick together. The Democrats' bill is just another package of ill-understood reforms whose main achievement will be to make Wall Street even more the vassal of Washington and do little to reduce financial risks. Which causes me to have to quote Jacob Weisberg writing in Slate.com, who said recently, 
A source of mild entertainment amid the financial carnage has been watching libertarians scurrying to explain how the global financial crisis is the result of too much government intervention rather than too little. Like all true ideologues, libertarians find a way to interpret mounting evidence of error as proof they were right all along. They're intellectually immature, frozen in the worldview many of them absorbed from reading Ayn Rand novels in high school. Their heroic view of capitalism makes it difficult for them to accept that markets can be irrational, misunderstand risk, and misallocate resources, or that financial systems without vigorous government oversight and the capacity for pragmatic intervention constitute a recipe for disaster. They're bankrupt, and this time, there'll be no bailout. And I had an interesting talk with a fellow quasi-libertarian friend, and we had to agree that when it came to at least the regulation of Wall Street in the hands of Alan Greenspan, an Ayn Rand devotee, that um, the jury appears to be in. Certainly when it, when it comes to Alan Greenspan's rather now famous uh, belief that fraud would be taken care of by market forces. In fact, to return to William K. Black uh, talking on Bill Moyers for a moment, when Moyers asked him, well, Bill, where are the other investigations? Why have there been no arrests? Why have there been no convictions? Black said, because we still have Bush's wrecking crew in charge of the key regulatory agencies. Why are they still in place? They have abysmal records as major causes of this crisis. Said black neoclassical economists don't believe that fraud can exist. I mean, they just, you know, the leading textbook in corporate law from law and economics perspective by Easterbrook and Fischl says, says I'm pretty, I'm pretty close to an exact quotation, a rule against fraud is, is neither necessary nor particularly important. He added, notice how extreme that statement is. We don't need laws. We don't need an FBI. We don't need a Justice Department. We don't even need rules like the SEC. The markets cleanse themselves automatically and prevent all fraud. This is a spectacularly naive thing. He called this thinking criminogenic. Noted that this is an ideology that both parties uh, are dominated with. It says, no, big corporations wouldn't cheat. Fraud can't happen. Adding, we now have the entitlement generation as CEOs. They just plain feel entitled to being wealthy as Croesus with no responsibility, no accountability. They have become literal sociopaths. So one of the things you clean up is business schools, which right now are fraud factories at the senior levels. They create new monsters that take control and destroy massive enterprises, cause global economic crises, cause great recession. Anyway, I can't say enough good things about Bill Moyer's journal and what it's done, but uh, let's talk about other things. Sometime back on this program, we had a chance to speak with a most interesting guest, Lieutenant Commander Ted Robinson, formerly of the United States Navy, about uh, his role in World War II in rescuing John F. Kennedy after his PT boat was sunk by a Japanese destroyer. Ted is a most engaging speaker, having had a lot of practice at that, running the Speakers Bureau for the, uh, the phone company in, in Sacramento for many years. I know that our chat with him got a lot of positive feedback last time, including uh, Stacy up in Chico, who said that uh, it was such a driveway moment, she was almost late to work. She couldn't, uh, couldn't stop listening to Ted's most engaging tale. And uh, happily, there is a postscript to the story, which I think we'll, uh, we'll let him tell you about. It's my pleasure to say welcome back to Radio Parallax, Commander Ted Robinson. Well, thank you. 
Well, Ted, you 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 mentioned I think, or we mentioned I th- I think on on the last uh, segment that you had uh, a cane that belonged to John Kennedy, and you said you may donate it to the Smithsonian, and that has now ensued. Tell tell us about that. Well, uh, I uh, I've written a book, Water in My Veins, and uh, it's selling all over the world to brave reviews, and uh, I sent a copy back to my uh, alma mater, which was Duke University. And the head librarian at Duke is, had been the head librarian at Yale, and now is running all the libraries at Duke. And uh, she said it was the greatest book she ever read, and uh, which uh, was a great uh, credit to, to me, but having been the first and only book I ever read. <laughs> and she wanted me to come back to uh, uh, Duke Alumni Weekend on April the 17th, this past April 17th, and be the featured speaker at Duke for the entire Alumni re, uh, Week reunion, which is a real credit. And so I agreed to do that. And years ago, about 10 years ago, when my wife and I were in Washington, D.C., uh, I recognized that uh, the, the not just the cane, but the picture I took of Jack Kennedy, which has been seen all over the world, and the picture he took of me, which has never been seen anywhere, <laughs> uh, and the camera that took it, and the cane that we're both handling in that uh, picture was was real history, I mean, invaluable. So I called the, uh, while we are in Washington, we went over to the American History Exhibit at the Smithsonian, and the curator said, oh, they wanted that very badly. And I said, well, I didn't want to give it up now because I take it around on a lot of speeches I give. And, for instance, I gave 113 speeches last year alone all over the state here. And because people are interested in that, and they all interested in the cane and all that so uh, I said, well, when I get old and I'm kind of giving up the speaking game, I will uh, donate the cane to them because uh, they, they really wanted it. So as long as I was back at Duke this year and was also invited, Duke, the uh, Naval Academy heard that I was coming to Duke and they wanted me to speak to the Naval Academy at Annapolis on this trip. So I did. So I called... Uh, the head curator at the Smithsonian, I said, well, I'm going to be at Duke on the 17th and at the Naval Academy on April the 19th, and I could come back and give them the cane um, probably at the 21st, drive over to Washington. And so they set up uh, whole press conferences and so on, and that's what, that's what we did. We think that's where it belongs. I have only one uh, grandchild, and... Uh, he he wanted it, of course, but we then what we did at the recommendation of the Smithsonian is we had a uh, wonderful woodworker here in town by the name of uh, John Brightson, who incidentally was a full commander in the Navy, and he's the best woodworker in Sacramento. He made a wonderful copy of that cane, which I have used ever since because the Smithsonian said, "My God, you've taken the original around and." I said, yeah, I've left it a few times. And they said, oh, my God, it's worth hundreds of thousands. Don't do that. So uh, now I have a copy I can use in my talks from now on, but they have it for posterity. Well, Ted, it's a, it was, it, was it a Melanesian cane? Where did you get the cane? Well, we in PT boats, uh, we lived in the early days of Guadalcanal. Uh, we lived in native villages uh, almost exclusively. Uh, 
we lived in in hiding because we were behind enemy lines half the time in PT boats, and uh, we lived with the natives. And uh, two of us, Jack Kennedy and I, always made friends with a chief. There's always a chief of every village. Jack, uh, I think that was his first sign of being a politician. He <laughs> he was very curious about the life they led, and in fact, that's where he got the idea to start the Peace Corps. I remember him saying to me. Uh, when I was his tent mate, I said, you know, he said, uh, I've been talking to Chief the other day, and these people have a life expectancy of 35 because they have no medical care whatsoever. And someday we should help people like this that have no medical care and so on. And, and I was alone in the tent with him when he came up with that, and in, uh, that was really the start of the Peace Corps in his mind. I didn't recognize it at the time, but that was it. And I was a great, always made great friends with the... Uh, chief because i was known as safari robinson while a lot of the we we operated only at night because we'd be destroyed in the daytime and our job was to stop the japanese supply line at night and i in the daytime when a lot of the guys after we got our boats refueled for the next night and armed and all that most of the guys would play poker but i was such a poor kid when i grew up i couldn't stand thousands of dollars in poker losses so i sent all my money home to my widow mother and i never had any to deal with but i love to go on safaris i'd take a native canoe and i'd say to the chief uh, now if i went up this river uh, are there any japanese up there right now am i going to be shot at or is it safe and he'd say well yeah go up here and there's a beautiful waterfall and i'm sure i went to native uh, villages that had never seen an american hmm. and uh so uh, uh, the chief uh, took a real affection to me and to Jack, and he, but he gave me the cane, and the cane's a beautiful cane, and he gave me that cane. And so after we rescued him, and his, uh, he was in real bad shape. Uh, a month after uh, we rescued him, I lost my boat. Nobody really gives a damn about that, although it was a far more exciting tale. And it was 70 miles behind enemy lines. But at any rate... Uh, I arrived back in the same tent with him, and we lived alone for about three months. And he was still limping around. He had cut his feet up very badly on coral reefs trying to save his men. And so I gave him my cane, the chief's cane, to kind of limp around on. And uh, he used that for a while, and then his feet healed. But uh, about a month after, two months after we were alone together, I took his picture holding the cane, and that became the second most famous picture next to the raising of the flag of Iwo Jima, I think, in World War II. I'm sure you've seen that picture. I sure have. And then he took a picture of me, which you've never seen anywhere, and nobody gives a damn about. And so the Smithsonian also wanted that picture. And so I gave him that picture, and they wanted the picture he took of me, probably because Jack took the picture, not so much me. But uh, I want to interject, Ted, that you're the better photographer. The one you took at Jack Kennedy's clear as a bell. The one he took at you is kind of blurry. That's what my daughter, my daughter is the top photographer in the world. I don't know whether you know that. And uh, and she, that's the first thing she said, that he's a lousy photographer. He might have been a good president, but a bad photographer. So anyway, I gave, uh, I, after I went to this, uh, Annapolis, I gave, the, gave it to the Smithsonian. I met the the, the uh, president of the entire Smithsonian Institute, and I 
while at Duke, the president of the Duke, who used to be the dean of Yale, and all three places I was treated like a king. And uh, it was my pleasure because I loved Duke and I wanted to do something for them. I loved the Navy. I wanted to do something for Annapolis. And I loved my country. And I think those kind of uh, artifacts belong in where the world can see them. Well, I couldn't agree more. And for more information, we refer our listeners to the nice piece by uh, Rob Hotekinen, I guess it is, from the McClatchy newspapers, written up in the B and, and all over the country. Yes, it is all over the country. Well, you say you're slowing down, you're speaking, but Ted, you're 91 now, and you're giving 133 talks a year. That's fantastic. And we're 113, but well, yeah, well, uh, I'm playing singles tennis, too. <laughs> well, we're, we're going to come back, if that's okay, sometime in the next month or so, bring our equipment, see if we can't tell that story of that exciting rescue that, uh, that you performed near, near Guadalcanal, I guess it was. Well, tell everybody to buy the book, Water in My Veins, <laughs> MerrimanPress.com. Uh, we'll uh, we'll get it to you there on the internet. It's actually six places on the internet, but go to Merriman Press, and they'll uh, sell you the greatest book you ever read. <laughs> I think, or at least so does the head librarian at Yale. That's a pretty good uh, not, recommendation. Not half bad for the only book you've ever written, Ted. Yeah. Ted, Ted, it's a pleasure as usual. Let's uh, and I, I'm serious. We'll be talking to you soon. I hope. Thank you very much. All righty. You bet. Okay. Bye bye. Bye bye. 